Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T. Happy 4th of July and hope you guys are digging the podcast. Uh, appreciate the support we've been getting out there on this week's podcast. It's going to be Pat Downs. Uh, we have a pretty good interview, uh, quite a long time. As a matter of fact, I don't even think we have enough time with what we uh, got to discuss and we'll definitely have him back on for sure. Talk about a lot more of engine building fundamentals and some of the performance uh, products that they manufacturer over there at cb performance but it's a good listen uh you'll enjoy this episode for sure i know i did so uh shout out to my vw fans out there um wanted to give a couple shout outs today to the last two reviews As a matter of fact the last episode i said uh john the ruckus it's join the ruckus is the one that uh, he gives a five-star review also tim bro says thanks for interviewing the people that we see at vw shows magazines and follow on social media but don't always know how and why they're in air-cooled VWs. Uh, also, I had Braid Z 4679 said, Bill T, thanks for taking the time to put together a great podcast. The content and interviews are very well done. I was really into the SoCal scene back in the late 80s, early 90s when I moved back to Arkansas. I recently got back into VWs and currently restoring a Calux 68 Type 14 Gia. Podcast has really inspired me to get it finished. Thanks and keep up the good work. Well, hopefully the podcast is getting people inspired and fired up to get back in the garage and get turn wrenches on those rides. I know I've got too many cars to be working on. As a matter of fact, next episode I may talk about what I got going on as far as projects because I'm in the process of going through and massaging the bull run bus. So bull run bus is going to get a new lease on life and a new attitude. So uh, keep that amongst ourselves as podcast listeners. So uh, yeah, if there's anything you guys want to hear, I'm going to get Pat Downs back on here uh, again after this podcast. We'll get him on again. And if you guys have questions or people you want us to interview out there, for sure, hit me up, send me some questions uh, and let us know who you want to hear from in the future and we'll get them on the podcast. I need some of my East Coast people out there to let me know who I need to interview that's big and influential on the East Coast. We had Bob Cook on here from Cookers. And uh, that's all I've got from the East Coast so far. So trying to get some more people on from East Coast, but uh, we'll see what we can put together. But either way, Pat Downs, you'll dig it. I did. And uh, check with us after the podcast to figure out how you can support the podcast and help keep it going. Later. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. Uh, to, on today's episode, uh, I've got Pat Downs from CB Performance. He's the engine builder and works with product development on a lot of their head work and engine building and engine combinations and whatnot. And they're out of Farmersville, California. I'm sure you guys have heard and seen them before in Hot VWs. And for a long while, I've been wanting to get Pat on just to pick his brain and talk to him about first his VW story and then pick his brain on all the knowledge he has in regards to building engines so uh i'd like to welcome pat to the podcast pat welcome to the podcast thanks great to be here hey so the way we start the podcast off every time is the first thing we want to do because in this vw community i find a lot of overlap in the stories of how people got into volkswagens and so my question to you is what is your volkswagen story and how do you get involved with volkswagens well i was two years out of high school going to college uh, working on it, getting my teacher's degree. I was going to be an auto, auto mechanics teacher. And um, I was working at a, a 
full service gas station, believe it or not, back in 1985. And um, a friend of mine who worked here at CB would come in to fill up on gas. And one day he asked me, um, hey, you should come out there and work. And, you know, I was a struggling student just trying to get through school and I wanted to make a little more money. So I, I came out here and uh, met with uh, Rick Tomlinson. And um, I told him, you know, I knew a lot about cars and, and um, you know, had a really fast car in high school. And he said, I don't need a mechanic. I need somebody to do my bubble packing. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. So um, anyway, I took the job and continued to, to go to college. And then, um, you know, eventually I just kind of gave up on the college deal. I met my wife, who was a teacher and went to school with her one day and realized the last thing I want to do is teach. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I've been out here ever since, almost 35 years. And now you're from Farmersville out there? No, I grew up in a little town called Dinuba, a uh, farming area. My parents were farmers. Yeah. And, and uh, it's about 25 miles from Farmersville. So did you get a lot of your experience at a young age working on farm equipment, things like that? No, I mean, I did work on the farm equipment, but I had two older brothers that were um, into cars and, you know, they, my oldest brother was probably the smarter of the two with cars and I would watch him and, oh my God, I rebuilt my first small block Chevy when I was 14 years old. Really? Oh yeah. Wow. I was driving at 13. Wow. And so now, now Rick gets you to come over. So you end up talking to Rick and you come over to CB and what year is this? 1986. So in 1986, you go over there. Now at this time, you're not particularly a VW guy. You're just looking to be kind of involved in the, v, in, in, in engine building or performance to some degree, or do you well, have a Volkswagen at home or, you know, I was, I mean, I've always been into cars and I've worked on my brother's Volkswagen and I knew a little bit about them. I just, you know, I just wanted to have a, a job around, you know, cars. I didn't want to be pumping gas anymore. Sure. So, um, you know, and I was good with, with, with cars. I was, for a kid, I was pretty intelligent. And um, I had a feeling when I came here, I would eventually be able to do what I wanted to do. So that's why I took the job. And I didn't last long in the bubble packing room. I think I was only in there for about three months. Right. And even in, even back in, in 86, they were doing a lot of, I mean, their primary business has always been parts and a, a VW store, right? I mean, just selling parts. Cause I mean, Farmersville is not like a hotbed, a bunch of street cars and stuff. That's kind of really almost, I mean, is it the VW scene pretty big in Farmersville or is it still kind of small townish? Well, we get all the outer line cities that, that come here and, Back then, you know, dune buggies were a lot more popular than they are now. Sure. So our front counter was always busy. We, we were actually open on Saturdays uh, back then. We get, I mean, we get Volkswagens from Bakersfield, Madera, all, all, you know, within a hundred mile radius, they'll, they'll come here. So we stay really busy. But I mean, you're bubble packing because, so my understanding is CB performance back in, I think it was the seventies or could have been the eighties. You guys were the ones importing a lot of Pumas from Brazil. 
Yeah, we imported a lot of parts back then from Brazil. Um, you know, some good, some bad. Uh, we tried to move away from that in the starting about 93, I believe. Yeah. Uh, but back then, uh, we were, Delorto carburetors were just booming, and we were the uh, importer for uh, Delorto carburetors. And I was doing the bubble packing and carburetor kits, and we sold thousands and thousands of carburetor kits. We talked a little bit about bringing in the Pumas. Now, you guys, and I and I only bring this up because I know my buddy Chris Cox ended up buying one of the Pumas from you guys before he passed away. And that, I understand, was was Claude's Puma. Is that right? Because CB stands yeah. for Claude's Buggies, right? Yeah, Claude's Buggies. I believe we changed. Rick knows these, these questions better than me, but I think we changed the name in the early 80s yeah. from Claude's Buggies to CB performance. And I'm going to and I want to get Rick on down the road for another podcast cuz I want to get the history of CB performance and what I specifically have you on. So now that we talked a little bit about your VW, so your VW involvement starts more by happenstance of you starting to work at CB performance and did you have a buggy and all that kind of stuff when you started there or you kind of started getting into it after your involvement at CB? No, man, I had I had a Buick uh, Skylark, and it was considered one of the fastest cars in the area. It was an 11-second quarter-mile car when I was in high school. What year, Skylark? 65. A 60, so big, the big-body Skylark. Yeah, and, uh, well, it looked like a Malibu. It was sure. The, the shape of a, you know, well, Malibu. Yeah, I've got a 65 Riviera, so I'm, I'm familiar with the size. It's a, yeah. That's a big car. It's a land yacht. So I, you know, I took the motor out, built a, a stroke small block Chevy. I did this in high school too, and I was uh, a junior. You know, put a 12 volt posi rear end in it. Had a turbo 350. I mean, it took all my lunch money uh, just in gas to get back and forth to school. Oh yeah, I believe it. Yeah. So. Uh, and that's anyway, a, yeah, that, that's I, a big I, car for 11 seconds. I mean, that that that's wildly impressive because that's probably a 4,500 pound car. Well, I will tell you this: that I used to go to our local track, which is Bakersfield, Famosa mm-hmm. Raceway, and I thought I thought I was pretty cool. And I'm racing this primered Volkswagen. Yeah. And I get to about half track, and this thing just blows by me. Really? And I'm like, what in the heck is, is this? And uh, uh, come to find out, it was a local guy in Fresno. And, um, you know, I had a lot of respect for Volkswagens after, after that. And that's kind of sparked my interest when I came out here to CV looking for a job. It's interesting because a lot of the people, I mean, from uh, Ron Fleming and uh, a lot of people that we've interviewed, you know, they had Mustangs or they had, you know, a GTO or whatever. And then they got walked by a Volkswagen. They said, you know, I'd like, I got to go see what's going on over on the other side. And that's kind of what was their introduction into how Volkswagens can be fast. Uh, so now you're over at CB. You start over there just in the bubble packing, doing that kind of stuff. Now walk me through how you, how, because CB, did, they, they didn't always build engines, did they? We always have built engines. Oh, yeah. really? We also, was it also a repair shop or you just built engines? Well, the way it started, um, and I, I, apologize if I get a little bit of this wrong if, if Rick uh, watches this, but Claude, Rick's grandpa, started a repair facility here 
back when um, the only place you could get your VW worked on was the dealership, and they were overwhelmed with work. So it started off as a small shop uh, just repairing VWs. Make a long story short, uh, Claude's son, Bob Tomlinson, which everyone knows, yeah. was working uh, for Hughes Aircraft, and Claude needed help because the business was growing. Bob comes down, starts helping Claude with the business, um, and Bob, being a lot like me, realized that you know he can make these things a little faster. He started modifying, you know, forty horse crankshafts, stroking them, and um, Bob started a small catalog, mm-hmm. and it's where CB Performance really started right there was um, just uh, finding getting old parts out of these these burnt up engines and working with them and trying to get a power Were they doing that there in house, like stroking cranks and stuff like that? No, we would farm that out. Yeah. Uh, um, But you guys were, you guys would get your own, you take your core cranks, send them out, have them stroked, bring them back and then sell them as stroked stock cranks. Absolutely. Yeah. And Uh, for the most part, those cranks, I mean, a lot of people have a lot of things to say about welded cranks, but I mean, I personally have never seen a welded crank come apart. Um, I'm sure you've probably seen way more motors than I have, but in regards to a welded crank come apart, I think if we're spinning a Volkswagen that fast, it's just going to rip the case apart before the crank comes apart. I mean, any crank's going to break yeah. uh, eventually. Sure. Uh, the better ones are going to last a lot longer. The cheaper ones, you know, I tell people they're, they're throwaway items. You know, use them for three, four years in a race car and get rid of them and get a new one. Yeah, I mean, or spend the money, get a two thousand dollar crank, and go twice as long. It's just kind of up to you. Sure, it's a time time money equation, just like everything else. Exactly. And so you guys were always building motors, and then I, you know, I was on your guys, I was on your website checking things out, and you guys have have a pretty well rounded outline of motors and quite a bit of motors. And my question, you know, I was looking at the motors, all the specs are there, and then horsepower rating. So the first question that popped into my head was like. Okay, that's pretty solid if they can say, I'm going to build you this motor and you're going to get X amount of horsepower out of it. Now, I would assume that that's from tried and true, tried and true in your dyno room and those types of things, but you're, you're fairly consistent with those horsepower numbers, huh? Yeah, if people follow what, what is said at the bottom of those descriptions, if you run the proper size carburetor, uh, the proper exhaust system, and if it's tuned correctly, they will make that power. I mean, I've got thousands of dyno uh, poles on different engine combinations and I know exactly what these motors are going to make. And how long have you guys been dynoing motors there? Oh my gosh. I mean, I believe our, our first dyno was a, a rollaway dyno that Bob actually took to Pike's Peak to tune uh, Rick Mears' uh, car. We built the engine for Rick Mears back in the 70s for Pike's Peak and he took that dyno there and tuned the motor at Pike's Peak. For their elevation up there? Yeah. So, man, we've been dynoing engines since the 70s. You guys now offer turnkey complete motors. You guys are one of the leaders in the market right now for heads. Now, the heads that you guys have made for you, you guys do all the machine work and everything in-house there? Yeah, we import the, the bear casting, and we do all the uh, seat installation, guide installation, um, machining, dual springs, uh, 
we have our new five-axis uh, Roller CNC machine that we do all our, our head porting on now, and a lot of our manifolds, not all of them, but... Yeah. Well, and so I noticed when I was watching your video, I saw that five-axis CNC now. is that That's the CNC that you guys, when you guys started offering the wedge port heads, the CNC wedge ports, that's the machine that would do the CNC wedge port? Yeah, at that time, we were farming uh, out all our work, and uh, it's been three and a half, four years ago, we decided we wanted to move it in-house, so that's when we purchased our own machine. And uh, Raymond, our, our CNC operator, he does all of our our um, CNC programming and uh, all our all our heads. Pretty smart guy. Does a good job. Well, and so so there's a lot of people listening to this podcast all over the United States. It's downloaded 30 countries around the world. And obviously, most VW guys, once they get their car running and reliable, the next thing they start hunting for is power. And I think most people would agree the largest majority of power is going to be coming from well, two things really displacement and heads heads are going to be probably engine flow obviously because an engine's a big air pump you know that's going to be your greatest source of power now with you guys offering so many different levels of heads um you know you guys offer what three or four different head selections to pick from or is there more well, than that got, yeah we just redid our 044 heads um all new tooling so we have the ponchito which is by far our most popular head um then we have the 044 casting, and from that casting, we see and see that head into about six different port uh, shapes, depending on the valve size. And now, and and that so that leads me to my next question: Is the port shape specific to the valve size that you're running? Because you, the the meat on the head and that kind of stuff, or is it? Uh, can you overport a head? You can overport a head. Definitely, yeah, absolutely. I've done it many times. Um, and I, and I don't mean breaking through the wall, but I just mean too much velocity that it just kind of steps in too big of a room. You know what I mean, I guess? Yeah, it's when the port gets too big, your velocity goes down. And, uh, yeah, it's it, your ports, you know, there's a lot It's there's a lot that goes to it. We can sit here and talk for hours on hours about, about it, but it goes to cross-sectional area, uh, the throw diameter of your seat. Um, there's a certain cross-sectional area you want to keep which for your valve diameter so yeah when i port ahead when i do i focus on uh, port volume you know flow of course port velocity i try to keep everything in balance no absolutely and, and and what's interesting there's a guy builds v8 motors right and we all know that the most popular v8 engines right now are the ls motors and uh, Nelson Racing Engines is the guy that builds them. He builds like 2,000 horsepower LS454s that you can drive in traffic. You know what I mean? Like that type of stuff. And so and we're talking water-cooled and air-cooled, but the only reason I bring this up is because the LS has become the new motor, right? The new, replace the 350 and the LS. And the biggest difference is head flow. You know, and they said they equate the NASCAR and the 350, the head flow of that, in the NASCAR level of ultimate racing is the basic head flow that you get out of an LS head design. And so heads have so much to do with the performance, the power, the power band. I mean, a, a lot of that, that head development, I think has made so many strides in the VW scene in respect to how much power you can squeeze out of an engine. I, mean, I, think, we're, I think we're getting more reliable horsepower today 
because of new head developments, CNC porting, things to that extent where you can get consistent power out of a set of heads when you guys are machining a, a, a blank set of heads, right? I mean, you'd agree like that's where your consistency comes from is really good head design? Yeah, I mean, yeah, your, your power, I mean, it's the whole combination of parts. Sure. You know, the base is, you know, if your heads can support uh, 200 horsepower, you know, you're going to want to have the cam in there that's going to be able to to achieve that. You can, you know, we can put a big port head on an engine with a small cam, and it's not going to make the power it could, but it's going to have a, you know, a, a lower uh, RPM window. Um, there's a lot of ways we can play with it, but yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, yeah, it's all. You know, if you have a good flowing head, you're going to be able to make power. Yeah, because I think the big the big mistake that VW people and I and I know what you see as the first mistake people make is you know there's always I think in the original performance magazines they always talked about how the V the VW the VW engine itself from the factory is one third carbureted what it can handle, and then the first upgrade typically people do is put a set of dual carbs or you know a, a set of CAD rounds or whatever the case is, and then and then they start just over the top on the carburetor and the induction side, and then the heads can't flow what they need to get the power. So um, do you see further developments taking place in head design and head work? Absolutely. Um, you know, we've been talking about furthering our development on heads. I can't go into a lot of that. Yeah. You know, but sure. Yeah, we, we, uh, I th we're the company known for development in the industry, and we're not stopping now. We're... We're pushing on, and no. there be some neat things come in the future. Well, yeah, I've often I've often thought to myself, like you know, there's a there's a guy up in Germany, and he makes a Type Four, Type One, uh, like a hybrid head. Um, I can't think of the name of the company. It starts with Ramel. Uh, Ren. Uh, yeah, Ramel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that guy, so he's got a set of five thousand dollar billet machine heads. Now. Um, They've got they're so they're designed, I think, for a type four with type one exhaust ports and, you know, those heads. And I don't know what the flow, what the flow on those things would be. But with technology, with machining and all that kind of stuff, I mean, a guy could make a set of billet heads. If you've got I mean, obviously, you guys have probably a half million dollars, five axis CNC there, a quarter million dollars at least for that CNC, which is a big step to take that that you're going to be committed to head design going forward, you know. To, oh, absolutely! You buy a machine like that, you've got to keep it running to pay for it. So, oh yeah, you've got you're making that investment. I've often thought recently. I mean, you're you're looking at regular gasoline engines that are becoming more and more efficient, and you see all the auto manufacturers are now going to direct injection heads. And so, you know, Porsche. So Porsche took a leap. Let's say in '97, I think it was '90 '97 or '98 when they decided to go water cooled. And Porsche's kind of mentality was, we have squeezed out as much horsepower as we can out of this displacement. Now we've got to water cool it so we can increase compression, change a little bit of the design, and do that stuff. And obviously, that's a tough swing for VW people. I don't think people, you know, it's, it's, it's hard enough for people to put an electronic motor inside a Volkswagen, which is for going to get you 175 pound-feet of torque, which is a lot of people don't believe it, but that's a lot of torque. To feel 175 pound-feet of torque in a bug, that's a lot of torque. But, you know, I would be interested, interested to see if someone would dare 
try to develop a direct injected head, but then that then takes it to a whole nother level as far as fuel delivery. Absolutely. You're getting into crazy amounts of fuel pressure and you know, there's not the stuff you want some guy in his backyard jacking with. Oh my God. Could you imagine somebody <laughs> getting a fuel leak? Yeah. I mean, we have, you know, we have our comp eliminator head. We have our screen eliminator. We have the strip dominator head, but you know, there's only so much money this, this, uh, industry can bear as far as what a customer wants to spend. And sure. Really the market is around, uh, from a six hundred dollar to a twelve hundred dollar set of cylinder heads. Yeah, and the 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 now the C, so I have a, C, a set of CNC wedge ports that I've had on a motor long block that's been mocked up in my garage for like five years, and I bought the heads. I'm gonna say when the wedge ports first came out. This is how long ago I bought the heads. I bought the heads when CB Performance had a booth set up out here at the Las Vegas Buggin. So this is probably going to be like oh six or oh seven. I'm thinking, yeah. you know. And so I've got a set of those CB wedge ports in here. And at the time, I think those were like, they were brand new right off the shelf on the wedge ports. How much is the, because I've never even fired them up. I mean, they're just sitting here on a motor. I mean, this is how old it is. I have ceramic lifters in the engine. Oh, wow. I didn't even know if they still make ceramic lifters. Shoebex. No, they quit making those. <laughs> yeah. So what was the issue with why they quit making the lifters? Any particular reason that you know, you know, I talked to Adam Wick who builds motors out here, off-road motors, and he said they were super brittle. And I can't, I, I can't remember quite what he said the reason that people were getting rid of them but maybe there just wasn't a demand maybe VW people did want to pay the money for ceramic lifters you know I, that's that's what really it comes down to is is the cost and what what the product can bear or the the industry can bear i mean it, a lot of people don't want to spend three four hundred dollars on a set of lifters sure sure well you know and i think part of it has to do with uh, client customer and client education you know when, when i bought so I'm a big Type 4 guy. I love Type 4s. And, you know, the, the motors in my bull run bus is a Jake Raby Type 4 that I, I think I, when I bought it in 01, it was $8,000 turnkey. And all my friends were like, that's crazy, man. That's so much money. I can't even believe how much money you spent. Now, well, okay. It's essentially a 2-liter 1641. It's got slip in, it's got big pistons, good, good parts inside it. And it's been a rock-solid motor for 18, 19 years now. And... A lot of people don't understand that they're, they're going to spend 600 bucks on carbs and 400 bucks. They might look at, I was on your website and now I'm a guy that I've taken my lumps in the last 25 years of trying to save a nickel here and a dollar there and do this and do that. And I can do this and that myself. The time it takes for me to build an engine, it's going to be weeks and weeks and weeks because it's going to be two hours here, three hours there. And then really what it takes to build an engine, a lot of people think you just slap it together. And there's those guys that just slap them together and those motors last maybe 5,000 miles. Um, but for the price you guys are delivering motors for, I mean, and I'm not just trying to give you guys a plug. I'm a guy that spent the money I've got. I've spent $15,000 on the motor that was in my type three Gia, you know, which was the best of the best. I checked all the boxes at Jake's place. And since then I've switched engine builders. I do type fours. And so I had, uh, a fat build an engine for me. And my last motor was redone by Adam Wick out here. And we're going to get into type one versus type four because I'm going to ask you some questions about that. But, um, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm only going to ask the question because I've been sold. Now, I love a, a fast type one motor. I've been sold, and primarily because I drive buses, you know, my, my two buses, my crew cab and my bull run bus. I love the torque a type four has. They don't have the RPM range. And, 
you know, the, the philosophy behind me on them was when I got sold on them back in the early 2000s was someone explained to me, said, you can build a two liter, 2.2 liter motor using 90% German parts. And kind of at the time, we're, we're, we're maybe having a bad run in the scene of like low quality parts and things like that. Um, and, and I want to talk about how you guys ensure the quality and the stuff that you bring to the market, because that's pretty important. I mean, your reputation hangs on that. So we're going to talk about type ones versus type fours, just as and not a you versus me, but just kind of pros and cons and, and how deep have you guys gone into it in regards to type one engine building and development? I mean, is that something that because there's not that much of a market there, you guys are so busy staying with the market you're at, you guys don't really spend a lot of time on the type four stuff or you guys have tried and you're not, and you just don't see the markets going for it. Or what's your, what's your feeling on that? Well, the issue with the type four is there's no new part or there, there is some new parts, but engine cases, um, you know, you can't get them anymore. So you have to have a deep core, uh, selection and, you know, we just, um, we're not in the, we're just not into that. Sure, you know? sure. No, there's nothing wrong we, with that. We uh, we build new engines, um, and we do offer some type four parts. Mm-hmm. We, you know, our EFI, uh, we grind cams. We have lifters for type fours. Um, it's just never been a big part of our market life. So for you guys, not really kind of messing with the type fours has more been of, of market demand. Like you guys have been known for type one stuff. You do type one stuff. You stick to it. Um, you know, there, there was a type four class and a lot of people would go to type four for displacement purposes. Like when in the off-road classes, I think it was a class two at the time in the late eighties. Yeah. You can build them big. Yeah. You can build three liter type fours and you got, I mean, the, the case is heavy duty and they're meaty and now, but you look at the evolution, right? The evolution of the Mexican engine cases now to the ones that are now coming out of Brazil. They come out of Brazil now, the new engine cases. Yeah. They come out of Brazil now, but they're uh, aluminum. No, no, there's brand new magnesium cases coming in from Rima, Rima, Brazil. Oh, so they're making magnesium cases now. Yeah, yeah. I thought, I thought that because Autolinia was the one that was doing the aluminum cases, right? Yeah, they still are. Yeah. So that may be actually the the components that I bought from you guys was a case. I'm not sure if it was, but I bought all the stuff at the Vegas Buggin because you guys were there and it was like a case and a set of those heads and I haven't put it together yet. But, you know, I had a buddy of mine assemble it for me, and then I think I'm going to pull it all back apart and have everything probably weighed and balanced because that's another big, another big part people don't realize is how critical is balancing of an engine. How critical is balancing? Yeah. It's very critical. But, it's, but it's, And what I'm saying is like a lot of people think they're going to build their motor themselves and they'll just, oh, they found a light and fly. Well, they'll just throw it on. They'll just do this kind of stuff. Yeah. But there's a pretty substantial difference if you've got a rod that's off by two grams or a gram. I mean, that's a pretty substantial difference in, in smoothness of how the motor runs and how everything kind of performs. Yeah. Yes. Um, and we, when we build our engines, uh, we have a sun and uh, balancer and everything. When we balance, we balance our crankshaft. Then we add our flywheel. We balance our flywheel. Then our clutch. Um, our rods are end-to-end balanced uh, in-house also. So when you buy a set of our rods, they're they're balanced. So they're out of the box balanced. You can put them on a scale. They should be right on the money. Absolutely, they're right on the money. Okay. Uh, and we also we you know we haven't got into this yet, but I think we're one of the few. Uh, part suppliers that 
do a lot of our own machining in-house, like our rods. We get our rods and we hone all our rods in, in-house. Oh, really? Um, we have a very expensive summon uh, uh, rod honer and we balance everything in-house. So, yeah. um, in our, our rod development, we probably got the best rod in the industry. I mean, bar like Carrillo, Potter, they're, they're great rods, but I think you can buy a set of our rods and well, you can feel comfortable that you're getting a rod that's balanced end to end, that's sized correctly, pin fitments uh, good. I mean, yeah, we spend a lot of time on our rod development here. You'd make your own camshafts? Yeah, we uh, grind our own cams in house. Uh, we make our own lifters. We have a, a two-piece lifter or lightweight lifter, we call it, mm-hmm. um, that's held in with double snap rings. It's a, it's a high-quality lifter. It's a little more expensive than others, but, uh, you know, it's not going to hit on you after, after – You said after 5,000 miles? Yeah, a lot of the lifters on the market are, you know, I, I can't say bad quality, but you take your motor apart at 5,000 miles and look at your lifters, you're going to see what I'm talking about. And so, th- so that brings me to a good. What what do you believe are some of the most overlooked things by guys that are building their own motors, or some things that people just skip spending a few bucks on, which is really cheap insurance in the long run? Is lifters? Now you mentioned lifters, and you said your lifters are two piece lifters. Yeah, our lifters a two piece lifter. We uh, we have a hardened cup like the old Eaton lifter, was uh-huh. made. and uh, it's that cup is held in with double snap rings. So we can control the heat treat of the cup, which is the just as important as the the base of the lifter. Right. And, and uh, yeah, we can control quality much better making the lifter in two pieces. I mean, because cams camshafts going flat. I mean, I go back to like where I learned about this stuff was reading Gene Berg's handbook about you know when you're building your own engine because he always believed that you're going to do the best job building your own engine, but then he doesn't know a lot of people, um, <laughs> but because some people really are just trying to get it together. The big thing that he said is you don't want to break in a motor with dual springs. You want to break it in with single springs so that there's not so you don't flatten the cam out. Now, what what are some of the critical components to causing cams to go flat like when you're breaking in a motor? One of the biggest problems is a cam should have a, a taper in the low and a lifter should have a corresponding uh, crown so when that when the cam turns that lifter is supposed to rotate and you're supposed to have an even contact pattern and that's the issue with a lot of these these uh, cams is they don't have the taper in the low or they have it going the the wrong direction I've seen I, you name it I've seen it that's when you have a cam go flat. I don't, I'm not a believer in having to take out the inner spring to break in a cam. I've, I've never done it. So just to be clear, so you're telling me that the reason, so I want to clarify two things. One, you're saying if, if the lifter and, and the cam follower are working in, or, or, let me rephrase that, if the camshaft and the lifter are working correctly, the lifter rotates in a circular manner while it's if if you were to buy one of our engine kits Uh uh-huh you build the you got it out the long block you flip your motor up on your engine stand and you drop a push rod in yeah if you rotate that flywheel if you rotate that motor you can watch the push rod spin and that's because the way the, the way the the lifter head is designed and and the and the cam design because of the taper that the natural force makes makes it rotate the lifter 
Yes, uh, we put a, I believe we put a half a degree taper in our cam lobes, and then we put a half a degree crown in our lifter. And because uh, the cam is not centered perfectly on the lifter, it's, it's off to the side. So when the cam rotates, the lifter is going to ro rotate. And what will cause a cam to go flat is if the backside of that lifter is just ground flat, if it's dead flat. Yeah, it's just sitting there in the same spot. It's not rotating, and you're not evening out the load across the base of the lifter. And so what you're saying is, so your belief from your experience building, en building engines is cams go flat because of bad cam and lifter matchups. Yeah, and compatibility. That's another huge issue in the industry is you get some of these, these new cam billets that are extremely hard, you know, the chilled iron billets. And you're using a, a too soft of a lifter, and you got a material incompatibility, and that's that's a major issue. Really? Even with, yeah, even with our lifter, you cannot use our lifter on these harder billets. If the cam will take out the lifter, you have to use a matched cam and, and lifter together. So, as far your advice to somebody buying a camshaft or a set of lifters from you, like if you're not using our cam and lifter together, you're better buying a combination from somebody else because we don't want you calling us saying, hey, your cam went flat or hey, my lifters are shot because they're not matched up. And someone building an engine should be it, – it, it's cheap insurance to buy the two pieces from one supplier to make sure that they're designed to go together. Absolutely. Or if I know the cam grinder and what, what cam, what cam Blake is using – I'm okay with that, like Webb. I think I believe Webb uses the same uh, cam billet as us, so I'm 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 comfortable with people using our lifters on that cam. Um, some of the other grinds grinders, uh, no. Uh, I tell our salespeople do not sell them lifters. Ask what cam they have. Yeah, well, that's I mean that's pretty important to know because, like I said, you know I've. I, I remember uh, I, I had an engine that was built and the cam went flat in it. And I was kind of bummed out about that because, you know, I, uh, you know, you, you, w from what you read back in the day. But then again, I think there's a higher level of sophistication in engine building and design and development today than there was maybe in the 70s when Gene wrote the book. And he was writing the book based on his experience with products that are available and experience that he's had with products maybe i don't know you know I'm, I'm i just go off of it because that's kind of what i read and it made sense to me and i've always been kind of a, if, it, if it makes sense you know it should make sense to me and everybody if it works for you go with it man. sure that's what I tell people sure gene, absolutely gene was a brilliant guy well, and but yeah like i mean we advance as years go on we advance and we we see better ways of doing things that we didn't notice back then or we didn't know to check and yeah i mean i built thousands of engines here and i have never unless i get into a extreme spring pressure flat tap at cam i never remove an inner spring to break a motor in oh wow so well okay you heard it here first on the let's talk dubs podcast that uh that Pat Downs is over there saying they build a good enough cam and lifter set that they don't have to pull the inner springs out when they break the motor. And so what's proper braking procedure for a motor? I'll start a motor up and I'll immediately get the RPM up around 2,500. Um, I'd like to go off and on the throttle, let the motor uh, rev, decel. Then I'll cool the motor down and I'll go through that a couple times, maybe three times. And then uh, to seat the rings, I'll put a, a very low RPM, heavy load on the motor, cool it off, 
do that a couple times, and and I just let it rip on the dyno. Really, and so yeah. so speaking of that, back in uh, what year was it? Let's see. It would have been February 2007, so that's quite a while ago. But they, they, Hot VWs did an engine build-off, and I was kind of looking at it because I remember, uh, I remember the cover of the magazine. It had all the engine builders there, and you guys took um, the most performance, the most horsepower, and the most torque with the motor. Now, was this it, when they did that test for people that don't remember that far back or don't have that issue? What were the rules behind this engine building competition? Because there was clearly a ton of vw like there was the top 10 engine builders or they just picked 10 engine builders that wanted to go head to head with everybody else yeah i think it was who who had the balls to do it right <laughs> i mean it, there's a lot at stake there's a lot at yeah, stake there, there is a lot at stake especially when your business revolves around engine building right uh, uh not revolves around it but it's a big part of it um yeah they had uh it was an 84 by 94 23 32 uh, had to run on pump gas. Uh, we had to have a stock size pulley, uh, stock valve covers. Um, I think there was no crank trigger ignition. Um, had to have a fan. And um, I mean, it, it was it, they left enough rules open to where it was really interesting for me to do it. To where to to where you could you you could push the limits to where you where you thought you could. I, I mean, was pretty confident I could win that event. I, and and you won the event. You know, and so a little behind the scenes on that event, you were telling me earlier that the night before something a little different. So everybody tested all the motors on the same dynos. All the room temperature was the same, and the you know because obviously everybody's going to come up with like, oh well, you know, room was two degrees cooler when he did it versus I did it or whatever the case is. But I'm sure the the, the playing field was leveled. You know, I think it was as level as they could make it. You know, in a in a dyno cell, the temperature is going to change. You know. And it's going to change as the day progresses from morning to afternoon. But, yeah, uh, I hope Jack Sacchetti's listening to this because I'm <laughs> gonna, I'll tell you a story about it. Uh, me and a, a co-worker, we took our engine down and uh, the day before the shootout to tune it in, in the Huntington Beach air. After about three pulls, I was actually up to 200. It was almost 234 horsepower. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And uh, it was about 9.30 at night, and Jack Sacchetti comes over, the engine sitting there idling, and he wings that motor about 10 grand. He's going to deny this when he, <laughs> when, he, when he listens to this, but he did, and um, broke the cam gear in the motor. Oh, get out of here. No. And <laughs> Now, he was just busting your chops. You guys are friends, and he was just kind of giving yeah, you a hard yeah, time. Yeah, we're friends. He just went up and he looked at me over at me and he smiled and just bam. I'm like, and then the motor on D cell it, it it just locked up. Oh. And I'm like, Jack, what the hell are you doing? Right. So I'm like, well, we can go home and look like you know, tell every everybody's gonna know we our motor broke. Right. So. Um, I looked at Jack and I'm like, do you mind if I get this thing off and tear it apart? So he gave me his, one of his engine stands and uh, I got it apart and the cam was broken in it. Uh, when the gear broke, it broke the cam. Wow. And uh, I'm, I said, you got a cam here? Because this is a custom cam that we ground uh, for this shootout. You, gra you, you ground it for the shootout. Yeah, that was the sh a cam solely for the shootout. And... 
He's looking around and he's got this dune buggy engine torn apart on his counter. <laughs> he's got sand all over it. And he looks at it and he says, oh, here's an FK-89. And I, I, said, I said, you got a set of lifters? And he's had a set of our lifters because I didn't want to use the old ones. Right. The different camp. And I said, well, can I, can I borrow your cam? And he said, take it. I blew your motor up. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so we put a dune buggy FK-89 cam in this thing and uh, get it back together at 2.30 in the morning. He stayed there at the shop, and we get it back on the dyno, and it made a little more power that evening because the weather was so cool. I think it made 2.29. Yeah, well, I'm looking at I'm looking at the results on it, and the the, the results they have on here for the engine builder build off is uh, 198 horsepower at 5500 RPM, and then 224 at 6500 RPM. But that's the leader of all the ten uh, the ten engines here. So yeah. Well, the next day, um, everybody was there, all the, the engine builders, mm -hmm. and they put uh, ten numbers in a hat. And you got to pick your number. I was number two to to pick, and I, I picked number two. And I looked at my coworker, and I'm like, "Oh, we got this, man. We got good air. We got we got a good motor." And I I knew then, you know, it was kind of it was a luck of the draw because the guys that came in hours later, you know, was warming up in the dyno room or dyno cell, and and. You know, they were at a little bit of a disadvantage. The reality was you could pick your own cam, do your own heads. Displacement was 2332, and induction was all the same. Everybody used the same carburetors. All the, you know, all that stuff was all the same? Uh, they had no limit on carburetors. Some people, one guy that James, I believe his name was, ran Delordos. Uh, Jeff Hart ran 48 IBF Weber's. I showed up with 51 and a half. Oh, did you? <laughs> well, yeah, why not, right? I mean, if, if that's if it's loud. That's part of, that's part of winning, man. <laughs> you, you take every advantage you can. So, And I'm sure people go, oh, well, he was running 51s, and he pumped more airflow, but it was like who's going to build the most horsepower of a 2332? So now that was, ten, so that was 12 years ago, right? So 2007 that came out in February. So that means you probably did it in 06. So you're talking that's 13 years ago, right? So 13 years ago, where do you believe you could best that number now? Like you could. Oh my! Oh my God! I could kill that number. Really? From what I know, from what I know now to back then, I bet I could be up at 10 horsepower. Really? Could, oh yeah. Wow. I know. I know, I know for a fact. <laughs> well, there. Well, there. You heard it. So maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll see another engine shootout. And see uh, see if you can hold on to the title, or if there's a new up and comer that's going to be able to, to to beat that. Because funny as I look back at the names on here, you know I recognize some names, some names I don't, and some names I think these guys aren't may not even be in the in the scene anymore building motors. You know what I mean? Who knows? But I think uh, I think that's awesome. I think it'd be awesome to see the same parameters put put together 13 years later, and see the developments the advancement and developments of of engine tuning as to how much power you could get out of it because the reality is a lot of people a lot of people have this crazy perception everybody's idea is 300 horsepower and you probably get those phone calls every day like yeah i'm looking you know i want a reliable motor daily driver but i'm trying to be around 300 horsepower street outlaws that's that's <laughs> 
Everybody wants to be like the dung beetle. All right. Well, so the dung beetle now. I so tell me about the. So did you guys build the motor for the dung beetle or what? Because they have uh, a CB performance sticker on it, do they? Yeah. No, we didn't build it. Um, Asian was good friends with uh, uh, Fast Eddie in Oklahoma at the time. Yeah. And and he really wanted to have Eddie build the motor, so we supplied all the parts for the for the long block. You know, heads, crank, uh, case. Pretty much the entire long block supply. Yeah, and so that motor is a twenty three thirty two. Yeah, but you know, since then uh, they've gone to a Subaru. They don't run the VW engine any longer. Really? So they put a Subaru power plant in it. Yeah. And they're because obviously it's water cooled. They can really wring its neck. I mean, I think that's one of the bigger differences. Plus the overhead cam. So let me. I want to ask you about that. What's your take? I know you guys, your business you're in is the air-cooled, the you know that kind of stuff. But back in the day, CB Performance did a bunch of kit cars and did a bunch of mods on things and, and whatnot. What's your take on the Subaru thing that a lot of people are starting to do? And it's a lot of that's happening in your area right there, a lot of the... Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're great engines, uh, durable. I mean, they do have their, their weaknesses like any motor. And, you know, the aftermarket uh, industry is... Um, you know they're making parts for them just like we are. They're, they're great motors. Our, you know, our EFI, uh, we've developed it to work on the the Subaru just because we knew it was going to be, you know, be a big market. Oh really? Yeah. So the, the so the new EFI you have can you can move it right over to a Subaru conversion? Absolutely. So what's that? So what's what EFI setup is that? That's uh, our our Gen Four. So the uh, the Gen Four is pretty adaptable software. I mean like easy to tune i mean I, ha I have one of your original in my garage i have an original it might be maybe a gen 2 i'm not even sure it's got the box under the dash oh, that was the, that was our gen 1 okay yeah that was back oh my gosh that was early 90s yeah well i i mean this was this was probably mid 90s when i bought a turbo kit from you guys and I had I wanted an under deck lid turbo setup i put it on my 1914 um it was the t t2 t t3 t4 Probably a, it's probably a Schweitzer or a, yep. or a Schweitzer, Schweitzer Turbo. Yeah. It's and I still have the kit, and my, I, I have to be honest with you, my frustration with it was my. Uh, so before that, I had one of those Turbo City side draft kits, right? I did some horse trading, whatever, got that. I had that motor, and I put on uh, back in 06, I put on. The, the we called it the Turkey Day Torque Fest. It was like Thanksgiving weekend. I had a buddy that had a chassis dyno, and we I had called up a bunch of buddies and like, hey, let's go do a dyno shootout in Vegas, right? So just local Vegas guys, and I dynoed my my 1914 with the Turbo City setup on it, and it was a 106 horse 1914 with 142 torque, and the next year different car that was in my 66 then i had a 67 same motor i bought the cb setup now the cb setup i put on there that motor dynoed at one uh 159 horse 170 pound feet of torque i've got a video of it somewhere and i'll post it on my website so that people can check it out of, of the turkey day torque fest the two different years that i did them here in vegas but the, the, the crazy part, that the part that kind of frustrated me a bunch was on startup, it was really, it just kind of popped and it seemed like it was cold and it just didn't. And my, my thought process when I'm buying a fuel injection setup is like, I want to buy something that I get it, I put it in, 
and it, I, it's just like my brand new truck in the driveway or whatever. You turn the key, start, it idles fine, it runs good, you can just start driving it right there. What's been the challenge with developing a good fuel system and where are you today versus back then? Like, and, and, and also, this is a multi-part question, and if I've already bought a CB Performance setup and I wanted to step it up and say, you know what, I'm going to take this 2332 that I have sitting on my shelf over here, I'm going to fire it up and I'm going to put the CB setup on it and I'm going to use their new computer. You know, is it adaptable? Can I work it? I mean, how, how's that whole thing come together? Yeah, well, back to the original part of your question. Um, you know, VW Motors is a lot of, a lot of engine builders know we, we struggle uh, to get vacuum out of, out of a VW engine with individual runner type uh, induction systems. So, to get a nice, clean, cold start can be a challenge because you're only dealing with, you know, 10, maybe possibly 11 inches of vacuum. Mm -hmm. So to, to run an idle air control motor and and get that nice high idle speed on a, on a cold engine, it's a challenge because all they are is a big vacuum leak. And if you don't have any vacuum to leak off, then you, you can't have a, a nice high idle. But um, we have come a, a long ways with the Gen 4 uh, as far as cold start. We have multiple parameters to, to tune to get that, that good instant startup, that good uh, transition from starting to running on a hot or a cold engine. Um, there's a lot of variables involved with it. Back in the original days, we were reflashing a, a Geostorm computer. And it was the programming was in DOS. That's wow. how old. Yeah, and and I was doing the programming here, and I had to stumble on to areas in that ECU to make changes. And you know, for what it was, it was a very. We sold a lot of those kits, and they ran well. They were really designed in the beginning to be off road. Right. Uh, and then they started getting into the street street world, which you know, they had it had its drawbacks, but it was an easy to tune system, and a, a lot of I mean, most people love those those kids. Yeah, um, well, I like the way it fit under the deck lid. I liked I, I liked that stuff. I I felt that my startup was better on uh, my side draft setup than it was on the on the EFI setup. It was a little crisper throttle response with a carburetor on a draw through, but then you're comparing the, when you start splitting the hairs like draw through versus blow through, they're two different designs, two different setups, and so. Um, but also to speak to fuel injection, what my Type 34 Gi, I don't know if you remember that car, the gray car on the Cosmics. So when I first originally built that car, Jake Raby swore up and down by the Motec, not Motec, SDS is what he had. SDS got to be SDS, SDS, SDS. Now mind you, it was 2009 when I built the car. I get that car. It it was it it was marginally better EFI than the Gen One system that I had, and then when I started tweaking into it and and wanted to really get the motor done, and I had some issues with the way uh, some of the tin was assembled on the motor, and I squared a couple pistons on the on the three four side because some flaps weren't open when the engine tin was assembled, like the show tin. And so, and I, everybody that knows me knows I drive my cars. Like, I don't care if it's a show car or not. I'm going to drive it and put it through its paces. It's ring its neck. And that's why I built it to drive it. And so when I took it to Adam Wick to get it rebuilt, 
um, I start talking to his dino guy, and his dino guy's like, you got to do MoTeC. You got to do MoTeC. You got to do MoTeC. Well, I think part of the challenge people don't understand with fuel injection is a MoTeC brain is $2,000 for the brain. It's 2000 VW people are looking for a, a fuel injection kit that's 2000 bucks, $1,500 or $1,200 all inclusive. You know what I mean? So me, and I'm part of the More Money Than Brains Club, and I had that car, and I thought, yeah, I really want to push my push-to-start button, and this thing idles. It's crisp. I drive it, and, and the best that car ever ran was with a MoTeC EFI setup on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. MoTeC is great EFI. The, the, we tried to follow a lot of MoTeC with the Gen 4. Yeah. Where we, had, where we had to stop and why the MoTeC is so expensive is it's developed to run on a multitude of different engine platforms. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of expense involved with that, developing the, uh, the ECU to run on different engines. And that's why they have to charge the amount of money sure. they do. For us, we stayed with the VW and the Subaru. We, you know, our, our market, we're, we don't yeah. want to get to the V8 market with EFI. We don't. No, yeah, I've got, I've, I've got a Subaru powered sand car and I think I have a stinger brain on that for, for that controls the factory EFI setup. So now we talked about the original Gen 1 and it was a little cold and it was originally for off-road and all that kind of stuff. Then you have Gen 2, Gen 3, which those are now history. Gen 4 if I have a setup existing, I have your CB performance setup, your under deck lid turbo setup. What, how big a deal is it for me to get a brain updated and boom, I'm, I'm in business. It's, it's really simple uh, because your throttle position sensor, your injectors, your head temp sensor, that's all going to work. All you, all you will need is the ECU, the harness, and a few extra sensors, uh, a wide band, um, air temp. Uh, you don't have to have a fuel pressure sensor, but mm -hmm. it's nice because you can see uh, your fuel pressure on your, your either your your mini dash that we sell or your your laptop, your monitor on your laptop. On that on that setup, it's have you ever done in because uh, my gears are turning while we're talking and I'm sitting and so I sold my Type 34 Gia. And sitting in the jack stands in my driver right now is another Type 34 gear that I'm getting ready to start because I'm a glutton for punishment. And now I'm sitting here thinking as we're talking, and I'm thinking, I wonder if I could fit that turbo setup on a Type 3 with the with the turbo and everything down low and then up pipe and put those throttle bodies on a... You can. A good friend of mine, Mike Fisher, who I think you yep. know Mike. I know Mike, yeah. Yeah, Mike did that on his on his, uh, his uh, squareback. Square squareback. Squareback, yeah. Yeah, so it can be done. It's going to take some work on your part, but um, yeah, you can do it. Yeah, but you're talking to a guy like when I did my Type 4, my Type 3, my Type 4 pancake motor, my Type 3, um, my airbox was 1500 bucks because it was TIG welded and aluminum and polished. And you know what I mean? Like, so uh, I, I'm hoping building my new gear, my intention is not to go down the same road as my first gear because it was so nice. I didn't. I, it, it bothered me to really beat on it a little bit. And I really like to beat on my cars. I mean, I like to, I like to drive them and give them a whole new lease on life. And we're going to go from mile one to mile 100,000 and, and enjoy every mile in between. So um, now the new gen system, someone buys a new setup from you guys, new a new EFI setup. 
what should they expect? They get it. They thoroughly follow the instructions, which is probably your number one issue, people not following instructions. Yeah, it's well, a big advantage for us today, which we didn't have back then, is we can go online and, and tune someone's car online. Oh, get out of here. Oh, I know. It's great. Really? Uh, we, yeah, we use a, a JoinMe uh, software, and then uh, there's another one that Mark uh, Lawless here is using. And, um, yeah, we tune most cars on online now. I, we can tune them across the world. Get out yeah, of here. No, no. It's, yeah, it's solved us a lot of problems. Really? So if somebody buys a setup from you guys and they're like, hey, I'm here. I got my motor running. It doesn't seem to be running right. Now, obviously, ult- the ultimate way to tune it is either on a chassis dyno or on an engine stand. But if somebody's not doing that, can you remote dyno? You can't, can you, you can't really dyno it or tune it if you're not putting a load on it? What they'll do, we'll have them drive the car and the Gen 4 will store memory where we can see where it's running rich, where it's running lean. And we just work back and forth. We'll, we'll tune the fuel map um look for any issues uh we see a lot there's a lot of installer issues uh, right they but and that's the hard part to solve over the internet tuning's easy fixing problems is hard but what's the biggest mistake people make installing one of your kits what's the biggest the most common mistake you see them make they rush the install yeah they will leave wires loose behind the fan shroud fan will suck the wires in they'll cut wires they huge issues grounds. Uh, yeah. They won't proper ground. They won't have their transmission grounded to the chassis. Yeah. Low voltage. Um, you name it. You get into them. It's it's not an easy part to sell. EFI. It's yeah. It's, I mean, especially when it's do it yourself. It's one thing if you just bolt it on. It, you know, usually the consumer is never. They've never made a mistake. Like, no, it's not what I did. You know what I mean? And it's uh, <laughs> and that's the tough part about selling a product for a do-it-yourselfer. That's going to be pretty critical in the operation of their yeah. car. A, a big asset to CB. I mean, Mark Lawless. He's taken over the EFI department, and the guy is so calm. You know, you can't rile him up. You can't get him frustrated. And he can sit there and he'll just work with you. To a point, you know, we got to call it quits after a while, but he's able to solve so many issues just just because his his personality is so so good for it. So yeah, I mean, we're having really good luck, and our support is is phenomenal. And so a guy like me, I, I have I've got a setup. What's it going to cost me to just get a new brain and do that kind of stuff? Since I've got all the other parts and pieces, what I mean, I'm sure it's on your website or your catalog, but. I don't know if it is. You're going to spend around 1500 bucks to convert it over with a Gen 4 harness, sensors, computer. Uh, if you've got a really old fuel pressure regulator that we used to sell, we, we want to get that changed over to a modern regulator that is going to hold fuel pressure a little more stable. And then the Schweitzer Turbo, you guys are still doing the Schweitzer Turbo and that stuff, or you guys have changed? Yeah, we, can't get, we can't get those anymore. Uh, we do... Uh, a hybrid. Uh, we have multiple sizes. I think we have four different sizes of a T four hybrid. And do you see that as a problem too? All the time. Sometimes people have the wrong turbo made it up with the motor that they have. Yeah, I mean that's really based on on uh, turbo lag. And a lot of guys will oversize the turbo and they have no low end out of the out of the car. Um, and then we really screen people on their engine when they buy a kit. You know, we don't want to sell them a turbo kit. 
that's just going to blow their motor up because it's not built correctly for a turbo. Somebody buys one of your complete turbo kit, a complete motor from you guys, turnkey, turbo setup, everything. Is that thing shipped, created, and ready to basically bolt in, run your fuel lines, and you're good to go? Ready to go. It's tuned. It's tuned about 85% on the engine dyno. I can't get it. You know, the load's going to change in the car. Sure. It's, it's, I mean, it's 85% tuned. And how many motors do you think you've sold? So let's say, I mean, let's just say over the past, when did you guys start offering the turnkey motors? Oh, we've, they were built way before I worked here. But since I've been building engines the last 32 years, oh my God, probably 3,000. Wow. That's a lot of engines. That's yeah. A, that's a, that, that, I mean, that's, that's a ton of motors. So someone can go to your website, pick all the parts and pieces they want to build their motor and give it to you to build it. Do you have to sometimes step in and say, okay, hey, Joe Blow, um, you picked the wrong cam with the wrong lifters and you're building this thing all wrong because you're, you're seeing that this guy's running an FK89 and he's using the Ponchito heads or these or, the, you know, he's, he's just, and you got to get him on the phone and say, what are you trying to build here? Yeah, I really, I really screen customers and I really feel them out. I'll ask them, what's your application? How are you going to use this car? And a lot of times I got to do a reality check with them, you know, explain to them and say, you know, do you want it to last? Because you can have this hot rod that you don't use very often. It's going to last you. But if you want to drive it like you do a, a daily driver, well, let's scale it back a little bit. So yeah, I work with them and the salespeople here are great too. They, they work with customers. What What is a realistic expectation that someone could have for daily driver, daily driver, reliable horsepower? What's the top end of the of what they can get? I, I tell on a on an aspirated motor about one eighty is where I consider the cutoff line. And now that's going to be one eighty at the flywheel. At the flywheel, yeah. How much do you lose through the drivetrain? Uh, about twelve, twelve to fifteen percent. 12 to 15% is what you lose. Depending on the chassis dyno, anywhere from 12 to 15. Okay. So you're going to di- you're going to dyno out somewhere around 150 at the wheels. Yeah, 150. 140, yeah, 140 150, which is mm-hmm. which is pretty good. You know, I mean my my bus, I haven't dynoed my 2600cc bus, but my my bull run bus that I've had forever, the first dyno uh, that I did on that, that thing was uh, 130 at the wheels and 140 torque you know which is for a motor with 44s on it, it's pretty solid <laughs> you know motor you're yeah, gonna... like we are we started our conversation yeah street motors you know the limiting factor is how cool you can keep it if it's going to overheat it's not going to last so that comes down to cylinder heads and the ponchito head of ours is a milestone for fast street engines now because you can put that head on a 2332 proper size cam and carburetors you can make 170 horsepower with that little that little now what's the biggest difference with your ponchito head compared to like your 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 older 044 castings well it doesn't flow the head of some of the cnc ported heads but airflow through the head it's got great cooling properties it's got an ASCAST bigger port. It flows 174 CFM ASCAST. And, and what's a stock, like a stock head's going to flow what? To give people an idea and difference in flow, a stock dual port head flows what? About 100. 100 CFM. Yeah. And the Ponchito's 170? 174. 
174. And what's the what's the wedge port? Oh, the new wedge port, I believe it's up in the 210 range. I mean, that's no. that's substantial. You're building a 2332 with with the ponchitos and you're building it with the wedge ports that's a note i mean what how much horsepower are you thinking is different with that oh a 2332 with a set of wedge ports nine to one with you know 48 so it'll make 200 wow and reliable yeah. a reliable 200 well then again you start getting up there uh, you're going to get into a heat issue and sure you know, it's reliable to a point. It's mm-hmm. not going to be reliable. You want to drive it on a 2,000-mile trip. But, yeah. you know, that's where I feel customers out. And I, I explain to them, like, hey, this is going to be reliable, but don't drive it through the Las Vegas summer, you know. Yeah, well, well that's the funny thing. I get I, I get people all the time because I'll tow my bus. My, now, my bus has driven. I, I, I probably have realistically, my brother was trying to convince me it was a hundred thousand. I realistically probably have 40,000 miles on my bus, which is a lot of miles on a show car or a once was show car. And then something you're driving that bus has been from here to California. A lot of times in the winter, in the summer, every time it's on a trailer, people are like, Oh, you're, you know, drive it, bro. It's a trailer queen. Like, no, I'm not an idiot. Like I'm not going to drive through death Valley. And first, I'm going to be completely uncomfortable when I have the option to drive my air-conditioned, fantastic Dodge Laramie Ram and uh, tow that thing with air-conditioned seats. And a lot of people don't know, you know, when you're living in the flatlands in the Midwest or something like that, you don't have the grades or the heat that we have here, which make the big, I mean, that's always been our challenge here in Las Vegas is, is you're already starting to cool the engine with 105 degree air. You know, yeah, I mean, down in the Southern California area, most of the time you're in your 80s. Uh, unless you were at Chino, unless you were in Chino for Prado, then it was, I think it was a thousand degrees. Oh my God, that was hot, wasn't it? <laughs> that, was a, that was one miserable Sunday, man. I mean, and then you add flies and a little bit of humidity because the water, it was a, it was a murky situation over there in Prado. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you got to know the situation where it's going to be used at. Yeah. You know, you got a guy in Hawaii oh my God, I'll build you a 200 horsepower motor for Hawaii. It's going to last forever. And that's, it doesn't get hot there. It doesn't get hot. And you got 30 mile of freeway. Go, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, in Las Vegas, New Mexico, Arizona, here, you know, it gets hot. And, you know, you got you to gotta build an engine around that. Yeah. And, and so now take me to one of your biggest things that you see that make you crazy as an engine builder. Is, is it the validity of people not keeping the engine compartment sealed off? You know, for heat, we're just talking about for heat, for heat daily drivers. Heat daily drivers. Now, what's the question? Now, d- does it bother you to see people that don't have the engine compartment sealed off, the lower portion from the upper portion oh, yeah. of the engine compartment? It drives you nuts. It drives and, you nuts. and let me ask you this question. What has been the most showed you? Have you guys done tests in respect to the deck lid lifted at the bottom versus the standoffs versus the deck lid closed? It's it is going to run cooler with the deck lid lifted off. I don't know about lifting off from the bottom versus the top. Yeah, like the cow look guys, they have that that the bottom standoff where it kind of. Yeah. It does help get that that heat out of the engine compartment. Yeah, and so that and and that's the flow in the engine compartment it goes across the across the 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 vents above the motor, and that 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 draws air in to that you know because that's where it sucks it in from the fan, but. Blowing that lets you get maybe the hot air out of the engine compartment. Yeah, um, I, I think at about 10 degrees, excuse me, head temps, oil temps, you know, 
it, it does help, but maybe 10 degrees on your oil tent. Uh, so let, let me ask this question now, because we're talking about engines, we're talking about heat, we're talking about all this stuff. What's your thought? What's your take on composites? Like, why? How come no one makes composite intake manifolds? I mean, we got three D printing out now. You can do, but uh, you can do heavy duty plastic casting. But would it make sense to cast intake manifolds out of a durable plastic or a composite material so that they don't transfer heat? How much of a difference does that make? Uh, you know, the fan shrouds, all these things that people have been doing or that people could do that you see in modern day engine development. Why do you think it, do you think it's just a limitation of you? Okay. You'll develop a composite fan shroud. And, and I, like I said, I've been in the game a while. I got one of those DTM shrouds that's never been on an engine. I have it sitting here. Um, it was for a motor that never materialized, but it's sitting here. But that motor, that, that fan shroud was maybe fan shroud and everything was like close to two grand, which is a ton of money. You know what I mean? And well, pe most people are trying to buy a motor for two grand, you know? So do you think it's cost-wise it limits the development of the parts or, or what? Well, you got to remember, you know, in the V8 world, um, you've got a plenum, you know, and, and having a composite manifold, there's really no stress put on it. Yeah. In a dual carbureted situation, you've got a lot of weight out there on those manifolds. You've got vibration. Mm -hmm. You've got uh, heat cycles. And the problem is developing you know, cracks, fractures, and, sure. and like that. So do um, you see any composites? I mean, do you see the future of VW stuff going towards any kind of composites to where you could... Because the thought process is eliminate heat, increase power. Eliminate heat, increase power. Because the energy created by the engine generates heat. And that's... Yeah, and it's transferred up into the carburetor. It heats the fuel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, down the road, if we could come up with a material that's going to uh, hold up, um, I think it's a possibility. I mean, I've seen people on the internet with like PVC, PVC setups for blow-through setups. I've seen it, and I thought like, wow, that's wild. But the, the 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 theory behind it is that you know the PVC piping doesn't conduct heat, which would give you at least a cooler charge. I mean, the charge is going to be what it is from the intake here. But let's say you're in traffic for a while, it'll keep from increasing temperatures possibly. So that being said, what's your take on all these coatings that they have? There's tons of different coatings that they have to coat the inside of the exhaust and all this kind of stuff because of air cooled stuff there's always been the thought of the fins the metal all that stuff helps get release the heat yeah yeah i i, I like coatings um i like uh especially you know coating pistons you can run tighter uh tolerances better ring seal mm -hmm. you know coating combustion chambers retain retaining heat in that uh combustion chamber it all helps um do you do you guys offer the coatings on your on your parts no no we don't it's something or is that more drag racing is like more in the drag racing world yes uh for street cars i mean you'd have to get somebody that's willing to to invest that kind of money in the racing world it's just a given you're going to spend money if you want to go fast sure um street and and then having someone close to you that can do the work we don't really have anybody in this area. I have to ship all my parts down to the Southern California area. So, you know, just racing applications, I'll get into coatings. Lubricants, synthetics or regular? And 
what do you you give any credence to any of these Teflon coatings or stuff that you could add to an engine, slick fifty and that stuff? Is that anything you would ever attempt, or you don't see a purpose for it, or what's your take on that? Have you guys ever tested stuff like that? We haven't got real deep into into oil. We carry Brad Penn here. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell all my engine customers, don't break your motor in on synthetic. Uh, get it broken, put a couple thousand miles on it with a conventional oil. And, uh, and then if you want to switch to a, a synthetic from that point on, go for it. But like in my race car, I'll break my motor in on, I, I run LAT, Sean Gears oil, yeah. and I'll break it in with his non-synthetic. And then after a few passes, I'll switch to a synthetic. And I'll actually pick up some power. And you'll, do, you'll, you'll, you'll increase in power on the synthetic? Oh, yeah. When I switch to a thinner weight synthetic oil, I'll pick up five or six horsepower. Really? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Now, what 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 about? Um, I hear some people talk about oil additives, like zinc additives and stuff like that. What's the reason why people are selling that stuff? Can break in, uh, and it, zinc is important. You need the zinc, and that's why we recommend the Brad Penn, the, the break-in oil on on a new motor. And the Brad Penn's got the it has zinc in it. Yes. If you can't get that, then yeah, you want to put a zinc additive in. Just, yeah. You know, that you need that for your camp. No, that's uh, well, that, I mean, that's those are important things to know because you, when you start getting in the world of building engines, man, there's as many suggestions as there are people, and everybody's got the oh, here's the trick, and here's the thing. And I know when you know, uh, because of my desire to build the type to, to be in the type four world, you know, I was doing all the stuff that uh, when I had Jake do a motor. I had him do, oh, I mean, I think my motor out of him was for my, for my motor was 15 grand and that was in 2009. But then again, there's not a got, lot of guys like me that, and it was purely by, it's Randy Gates fault. Cause he built that super nice Azure blue split window. And I saw that car and I was like, I need to build a Gia to that level, but I need to do everything one notch above that. You know what I mean? And so, and that's, sure. that's where. <laughs> You know, the first motor that I bought for the Gia, you know, a little side story nobody knows. I bought a motor from some guy because I spent all the money built buying the motor from Raby. And then you're always looking for like, well, can I save a dollar doing this or doing that? And I ended up buying a motor from a guy that was on the Samba building type four motors because originally the Gia project was just going to be a daily driver. It wasn't going to be a show car. And through a sequence of events, I ended up shelving that motor besides the fact that I looked at. I didn't even open the motor up. The motor's like twenty two hundred bucks for a twenty three hundred type four. And I was like deal well when i got it it wasn't such a deal you know it was like used off-road parts and it was you know the displacement was big but it like had i don't know what, what it was coated with on the inside licorice or tar i don't even know what it was but it was like it's one of the old adages like you get what you pay for and you, you sure. can you can save a few bucks now you in the past few years there's been a lot of guys that maybe they've been around i don't know i'll probably get them on the podcast to kind of see what they're doing. But there's a lot of guys building engines now a lot of guys building engines it's interesting because I talked to Adam Wick down here. He, Adams, he's known more in the off-road scene than he is in the VW scene. And he started out a street VW guy. For him, you know, talking with Adam, he's like, man, Volkswagen people are cheap, A. 
and B, the motors take it's twice as much work to build a VW motor than it is to build an LS motor. That's true. That's I mean I hate to say it, but yeah, that's true. Not not all VW people are. Well, cheap, no, but, but I mean what what he's saying in, in in reference, and that's not why he does what he. But he's like that's why I can't commit the time to building VW. You know his passion is VWs, and he loves Volkswagen. And I'll, I'll be getting him on the podcast soon, especially after I told him I got you guys on the podcast. We're talking engines, and this guy's gonna. You know we just I love to get the perspective from everybody, but. A lot of people don't realize like building a VW motor labor wise is more physical work than building a V8. It, it is. There's a lot of things to check. You've got parts coming from multiple different suppliers and you can't, you check everything. If you want the engine to last, if you want it to be something you're going to have 10 years down the road, you, it has to be built right. Yeah. And that means you can't throw a motor together. And, and, and that takes time to check these things, to blueprint a motor. It takes a lot of time. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And, and, and a lot of times people don't comp- – I saw on your website what you charged to build a motor, and I think it was like 1400 bucks for the labor. I think something like uh, that. Between 1000 and $1,400, is that what it is? Uh, it's 800 for a long block and about 1500 for if I get into a turbo motor, it goes way up. Oh yeah, but but the reality is, when I was looking at that, I thought that's a reasonable, that's a reasonable amount for a guy's labor because you're not just paying. It's not like you look at the VW factory movies and they have like women working in the engine assembly shop and here comes the crankshaft with the rods hanging everything and they just drop it in. They put the case halves on all this stuff. But then again, what no one seems to because they see that and the perception to people is like, ah, look how easy it is to build a VW motor. I mean, and there's chicks doing it in the video. You know what I mean? Like that's the perception. And then you reel it back into reality. Okay. Those were motors that had a max RPM of 4,800 RPM. They produced 40 horsepower and they produced 36 horsepower at the flywheel. You know what I mean? Like it was like a Briggs and Stratton engine. There wasn't, and you also have Briggs and Stratton engines that are three horsepower and 50 horse or 30 horsepower. You know what I mean? Out of, out of the same motor. And it's all in how it's built. And, and some people never grasp the concept that the more power you want to build out of the same platform. I mean, you're talking, when you're saying 200 horsepower out of a long block, I mean, that's four times the factory horsepower. Four yeah. times. You know, and, you know, just getting the rocker geometry set up on a motor like that could take three hours or, yeah. or longer, you know. And that $1,500, that includes dynoing an engine, too. That's just not assembling it. Every engine that comes through this company's dyno. And now, do your motors do your motors have any kind of warranty with them when you build them? We don't give a mileage warranty on anything other than stock. Um, we stand behind them, though. If someone has a problem, we make it right. But rarely, you know, knock on wood, I don't get a lot of engine problems. Um, you can't control customers. I mean, a guy can fire the motor up and just rip the thing to 10,000 RPM in two seconds and you let go of a cam gear. You know what I mean? It you doesn't happen. No, Jack Sacchetti shows up at your house and he flogs the throttle while he's sitting on the passenger side. Yeah. Next thing you know, you're rebuilding a motor. Yeah, Jack's not allowed around my engines anymore. I can't wait to get him on the podcast and bust his chops about that and be like, hey, so yeah, I heard gonna, this. Hey, he's going to not deny it, but I got witnesses. <laughs> you know, I had a motor that, that I spent my whole summer building and then I grenaded it like the first run. And I was so discouraged. I sold my Volkswagen. I sold everything. And I was like, man, it's got to be pretty pretty calm for you to have a guy grenade your motor before the shootout, and then you're able to uh, rebuild it the night before the shootout and put it out. So hopefully when people hear this podcast, 
Uh, maybe they'll set up another engine shootout. I think it'd be great to see. Maybe if we get a show down here in Vegas, we could hold it here in Vegas. I know Wick's got a dyno room here, and we could do something. That I'm sure he'd be more than happy to be part of that. And and maybe maybe we can get something like that set up again. I think that would be. I think it would be. Yeah, it would be pretty awesome because the dyno setup you guys did, there wasn't a lot of people there. It wasn't open to the public. It was just like just the builders, right? No, there was the public was there. We had Dino Dawn. Uh, oh, really? The, oh, yeah, it was fun. We we probably had a couple hundred people there. Well, may, it. maybe that'll be another. Uh, we're working on planning a Vegas event. Maybe that that may in fact be something that I set up as part of the weekend. It'll definitely be something in 2020. But we're we're we're, we're I'm working behind the scenes right now trying to put something together. I get something put together, you'll be the first one I call on the list, and then Adam's going to be in there, and we're going to get a lot of people in on this thing because I think it would be something cool to do to see the difference in power and performance you'll get 13 years later in the same industry. Yeah, that would be fun. Maybe we try to go off the same rules and see if we can expand how far we can push it. Uh, well, you know what? Maybe we'll get the pool of guys together and we'll let them establish the rules that all will agree to, and we'll see what, what happens from there because I think uh, – Sounds good. Sounds like fun. No, I think it'll be a great time. Well, I really look. I I appreciate the time you took for us. I I think we got still more stuff to talk about, and we may do a follow up podcast on something like this. And I I want you to for sure. Anytime you guys are coming out with something new or some new development, some stuff like that, feel free to to look us up here at Let's Talk Dubs, and and we'll get you out here on the podcast, and we'll talk about the new stuff you guys are working with. And make sure if you guys see that see them set up at a car show, go by and say hi to Pat and all the guys from CB Performance. I mean, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. I've really I've learned a lot. I've heard a lot of a lot of great insight to some things that I didn't really know. And I'm sure I'll talk hours, man. Yeah. If you want to do this again, we can keep going. Listen, I, I, I'm going to take you up on it. And we're going to come back to it because I'm going to let the, I'm going to let our listeners dictate to me. I'm going to, uh, so we'll put this out there that, that we'll have the listeners put together their list of questions that they would want to have answered. And I'll, we'll set up another podcast and I'll come back and I'll hammer you with some questions. One quick question. What was, because on street outlaws, they never show the ETs of the cars, right? What was yeah. the ET? And I found I got a buddy that runs those those kind of cars. Most of those cars run eighth mile anymore. They're not even running yeah. a full quarter. What did the bug run quarter? The dung beetle. I that, I believe that dung beetle is a low nine second, mid nine second car. Wow. With, with the VW motor. Wow. It's fast. It's a fast car. Yeah, that's that's but, pretty. But those cars that he's racing against, I mean, those are seven right. seven second cars. That's a whole different ball game. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, Pat, man, I appreciate you so much for coming on the podcast, and uh, we'll uh, we'll look for sure to have you back on here. I'll let you go. I know you got to go. Thanks for coming on. And anything anybody wants to get to you, what's the best way they can get to you? Just call or email CB Performance. Um, I I take calls from twelve thirty to two thirty, uh, and I'll be more than happy to talk to anybody. Well, hey, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I've had a great time, and I look forward to getting you on here. I'm gonna take you up on. I'm gonna get on. I'm gonna get you on here again. Okay, sounds good, buddy. All right, hey, have a great have a great day. All right, you too. So, like you guys heard, uh, any questions that you have for our next round of interviews with the people of CB Performance, hit me up on letstalkdubs.com on the contact page. You can also DM me through Instagram at letstalkdubs.com, or you can uh, private message me on Facebook or. Start a question on our Facebook page at letstalkdubs.com. Uh, the interviews are getting better, um, digging, really getting a lot of insight and behind the scenes uh, information as to how these products come to development and also their personal opinions and takes on certain aspects of the hobby, such as uh, 
you know, coatings and, uh, you know, lubricants and all kinds of stuff like that. So for sure, guys, if you have any questions, man, hit me up. Also, to support the podcast, if you're lo- if you're loving the podcast, do what you can to support the podcast. We've got a few supporters out there who bought some swag off the internet. I've got uh, some stuff at our Let's Talk Dubs podcast our website you can click on the store and the store has got plenty of stuff that you guys can purchase hats and t-shirts and dickies uh, that you can purchase to support the podcast so appreciate the support don't forget to rate and review the podcast give us five stars review the podcast and i'll give you a shout out if your name when you're typing on there doesn't come out the way you want it make sure you put your name inside the thread and uh, i'll make sure to announce you guys and give you a shout out on the podcast so again i appreciate all the love and support we've been getting until next time guys let's talk dubs station wagon to have a